Please turn with me in your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 9. We are going to finish the book of Ecclesiastes this morning. Woo! <laughs> Next week we'll be in the Gospel of John if you want to start reading ahead. This morning, Ecclesiastes 12, verse 9. Youth ministry is going to be heading to the youth rooms for their Bible study. Opens up a bunch of chairs over here if you're looking for a seat. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for your goodness. It's so good to gather together in your name to draw near to you. Thank you for your grace that you give us, your mercy that you give us. Thank you for your faithfulness. Help us this morning to grow in the fear of you, the respect of you, the awe of you, to grow in loving you and loving others. We thank you for the book of Ecclesiastes and pray it would bring lasting fruit in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. I love it when the best is saved for last. Isn't that what's so good about dessert? You have a good meal, but then, man, here's this dessert to top things off. Last week I went to a lunch and you were come to your table at the luncheon and the only thing that was at the table when you sat down was the dessert. And it was so tempting to eat the dessert first but I was so glad that I saved the best for last. I enjoy sports. I enjoy following sports. It's always inspiring in sports when someone saves the best for last. When the team is able to have something left in overtime and someone steps up to the plate and really comes through. When you're watching track and field and it comes to that last lap and you can see that someone pushes through the fatigue and the mental battle and they press through and that their very best lap was their last lap. I think the most inspiring is in life when someone finishes well. And you see that they end strong in their relationship with the Lord. Jesus saved the best for last, didn't he? At the marriage feast of Canaan. Solomon saves the best for last. He's been showing us where emptiness is. This meaningless pursuit to now in these last few verses show us where true substance lies. Solomon's conclusion is the same as the Westminster Catechism, a group of men that came together and said, what really matters in the Christian faith? They said, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That's our chief end. That's the conclusion of all things is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Verse 9. And moreover, because the preacher was wise. Throughout this book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon refers to himself as the preacher. He still taught the people knowledge. Even though there's such a battle with vanity, emptiness, struggle, toil under the sun... Solomon still saw it worthwhile to impart knowledge, to teach knowledge. And I hope that we come to the same conclusion as well. That we don't get so discouraged or overwhelmed or focused on our inadequacies. That we don't take those opportunities to impart and share truth and share knowledge. Solomon gives us a few things here that were going on in his heart and mind as he was preparing to communicate truth, as he was preparing to communicate wisdom. I think it's helpful for us as we think, how do I share wisdom? I want to impart God's word to others. I want to impart knowledge to others, but I don't really know how. Yes, he pondered and sought out and set in order many proverbs. So if we're looking at practical ways and grow and communicating the wisdom of God is first, 
to be thoughtful. Notice what Solomon does is he pondered and he sought out and he set in order many Proverbs. And Proverbs are short sentences that have a powerful punch, that have a powerful meaning. We have a whole book of Proverbs written by Solomon. How did he come to this wisdom? Well, first he pondered. We need to be in a place where we're meditating upon God's word, we're drawing near to the Lord. When God's word's impacted us, it's a lot easier to share it. And that takes place through pondering it and meditating upon it. It's similar to a cold as we head into cold season. The only way to pass on a cold is you have to be infected with it. And we want to be infected with the love of Jesus Christ. We want to be infected with the word of God. And that takes place through pondering it. It seems that God's word is always most alive in my heart and life when I'm just taking time to spend in it personally. And God is speaking to me. He's challenging it, challenging me. I'm meditating upon it. And then there's a reservoir of things to be able to share. But when I'm not pondering the word, when I'm not in that place of meditating or taking that time in my personal life in the word, then it becomes dry. The well becomes empty of things to to be able to share. So he ponders and then he sought out. He's determined to set many proverbs in order. He's giving thought when it comes to communication. How can I share this in a logical way where people can follow what I'm saying? It's always discouraging when we share in any setting where we leave that person and they're going, I have no idea what they just said. I can tell that they have a lot of passion, but I don't know what in the world they were talking about. We leave that conversation and we're like, I have no idea what I said. I, I don't know what I communicated to them. We want to take the time to put it together in a logical order where someone can follow. It's always frustrating when someone's talking to you or you're listening to a sermon and you're like, I can't follow logically where they're going. I can't track with what they're saying. What if all of a sudden right now I just started talking about sanctification? It would make no sense, right? Because this verse is not talking about sanctification. Is sanctification biblical? Yes. But if I just chased a rabbit that you can't follow? Yes, right? And so we want to take the time to, to put it together in a logical way, a thought-through way so that people can follow it. In verse 10, the preacher sought to find acceptable words and what was written was upright words of truth. Second thing in communicating wisdom is we want our words to be acceptable. We want our words to be both appropriate and easy to receive. When you're sharing with someone, you want to know your audience. You want to know who you're talking to. Do they not know the Lord? Do they not have any background of the things of God? We see with the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, as we get into John, they're written to different audiences. They're written to different people. The Gospel of Mark is written to primarily Gentiles who don't have background of the Old Testament. And so it's coming from a different perspective. It's finding acceptable words that are going to reach people to that background. If we go overseas and we're in another culture, we want to make sure that we're finding acceptable words that are going to resonate with their culture. I remember my first, one of my first missions trips when I was 16, I had the opportunity to go to Mongolia. We got some cultural training and they said, while you're over there, do not give thumbs up. And I was so thankful for that because I like thumbs up. Yeah, right? It's the equivalent to the middle finger over there. 
You want to find acceptable words. In most Asian cultures, you don't sit and talk to someone with your foot up where they can see the sole of your foot. For me to do that right now, over in Mongolia, would be super offensive. Well, that's another thing that I like to do, right? Sit and talk with someone, just put your, put your foot up. And so we need to be aware of where someone's coming from. If we are talking to youth and we're sharing with youth to try to get into their world to find words that are going to be acceptable. Now, in this process, we don't neglect truth. That's the next thing that Solomon comes to, is in communicating wisdom, it must be truthful. He says he's writing words of truth. He sees the value of truth. This is probably the most important thing in sharing with others, is that we give them the truth of God's word. Not our opinions. How good are our opinions? Not so great. How many times have my opinions failed me? (laughs) Lots of times, right? But is God's word trusted? Is God's word faithful? Is it powerful? Absolutely. In Psalms 138, God says that he magnifies his word even above his name. That's a powerful statement. So the name of God is powerful, but he honors his word. He magnifies his word even above his name. Hebrews 4 tells us that the word of God is sharp, and powerful. It's living and active. When we share it with people, it does a work in their life. When we're sharing God's word, we don't always have to say the chapter and verse, right? I love sharing scripture with someone, and they don't even realize I'm sharing scripture with them. Just having a conversation with them, doing life with them, talking with them, and then you can start to begin to talk about forgiveness and the importance of forgiving others, but first receiving forgiveness from God. But we want to look at life, look at opportunities, and say, okay, Lord, where can I be sharing truth? How can I be prepared to share truth? I've pondered these things. I've set them in order in my own mind. Can I explain the gospel in an orderly way? Can I explain creation in an orderly way? Can I explain God's heart for sexuality in an orderly way? I've already thought that through and thought about how to be able to communicate it. And okay, now here's the opportunity to share the truth in love. God's word will not return void. In verse 11, the words of the wise are like goads, and the words of scholars are like well-driven nails given by one shepherd. Two illustrations here in communicating is one is of goads, and another is of scholars, and both speak of purpose, purposeful communication. A goad was a long stick with a sharp end that would be used to guide and correct cattle and sheep. And words can guide and correct, but as we're sharing truth and we have the opportunity to share truth with others, we want to be purposeful to what end are we sharing, hopefully to provide guidance, hopefully to provide correction where it's needed. Words are like a well-driven nail, thinking it through, praying it through, And when God's moving and it's the right opportunity, nail it home. Nail it home through the power of the Holy Spirit. In thinking through communication, share, teach, preach, not just information, but for prayerful change. Share for change. Share for that purpose of saying, I believe that God wants to do a work in their hearts and lives. That God's going to use the word to guide them. Use the word to, to point them to the gospel. And then that moment, say, okay, here it is. And that's always the frightful moment, isn't it? It's one thing to share truth, and it's another 
thing to discern. I, I believe that this is what God is doing in your life right now. And I want to encourage you to step out in forgiveness. I want to encourage you to receive God's forgiveness. This is what God's word says. And here comes the opportunity to respond to it. Sometimes you listen to people share and they have truth, but they don't have any purposeful passion and it's hard to listen to them, isn't it? Wah, 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 wah. You're like, I agree with what you're saying. I just wish you were excited about it, right? So we don't have to be ashamed about it. We don't have to put our hands down and kind of mumble and go, well, well, Jesus loves you. I'm afraid to tell you that Jesus loves you. To be able to have purpose in what we're sharing and passion in what we're sharing and, and believe that God is going to do the work and nail it home, nail that truth home in that moment. The last thing that Solomon kind of sums up in this idea is given by one shepherd. Solomon is pointing to his method of teaching through the book of Ecclesiastes. In a commentary called Opening Up Ecclesiastes, it says this, the purpose of the book of Ecclesiastes is not to drive us to despair, but to shepherd us into the presence of God. Solomon has been shepherding us to this conclusion. He has been writing down skillful words as a preacher and a scholar to cause us to see our end, to cause us to see what really matters in this life. In verse 12, and further, my son, be admonished by these things of making many books, there is no end. And much study is wearisome to the flesh. Can I get an amen? You get tired of studying, get tired of being in school, and man, it's wearisome. The, the books never come to an end. And in this process of communicating truth, we do need to be warned. It's going to be hard work. It's going to be wearisome to our flesh at times to think things through, to ponder, to set things in order, to make sure the words are acceptable and truthful and share them with purpose, but it's worthwhile. I'm glad that Solomon took the work to write down the book of Ecclesiastes. You guys ready for the conclusion of the whole matter? Here it is. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. The emphasis on stop and hear. Where is the meaning of life? What is the purpose of life? Why am I here? Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is man's all. Fear God and keep his commandments. This is our all. This is our aim. This is where we find meaning and life makes sense. Now, what if Solomon would have wrote this in chapter 1, verse 1? Fear God and keep his commands. This is man's all. God bless you. Have a great week. He would have saved us about three months of study, right? But would it have had the same impact? Absolutely not. It would have been easy for us to go, this is too simple. This isn't thought through. There has to be meaning outside of a relationship with God. Pleasure can provide satisfaction. So Solomon shows us, no, apart from God, it leads to emptiness. Okay, possessions could provide satisfaction. Not apart from the Lord. And he goes through all of the things that we've studied throughout the book of Ecclesiastes to where we're longing and we're hungry to really find out where meaning lies. To fear God. Job was a man that had incredible character. The scripture tells us that he was upright and blameless. 
And then God tells us why. Because he feared God and he shunned evil. He had a fear of God. And because he had a respect for God, that then resulted in the character of being blameless and being upright. When we think about the fear of God, it's not that we cower at God. It's not that we're afraid of God in that sense. The idea of fearing God is the awe of God. It's respect of God. It's to see God and put him in his proper place and to put ourselves in the proper place in light of who he is. It's worship. And understanding the awe of God is important in this life. It's important for us to glorify the Lord and experience the abundant life that God wants us to have. I want us to take a look at a familiar story for just a few moments. Would you turn with me to Luke 15 and look at verse 11? And I want to look at the fear of God, the respect of God, the awe of God through the lens of the prodigal son. If we interchange the word fear for respect, if we understand that the fear of God means the respect of God, the father ultimately points to God. So let's read through this story together and see where there's a lack of respect for the father, a lack of fear, if you would, for the father, and then how the fear, the respect, comes into the prodigal son's life. In verse 11, Then he said, Jesus speaking, a certain man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. So he divided to them his livelihood. I was reading this in my devotions a few weeks ago, and this verse really stood out to me of the entitlement mentality of this younger son. Give me. He's got the give me's really bad. Give me my portion. He never comes to the father and says, thank you for working so hard. Thank you for all that you've done. Thank you for taking care of me. Thank you for this inheritance. Could I please have it now? I've got some plans that are on my heart and on my mind. With brash boldness, he comes to his father and he says, I want it right now. Could you imagine going to a parent before they've died and said, you know, I know I'm going to get all your money. Can you just cough it up now? Right? This is the absence of, of respect for the father. He doesn't have respect for his father at this point in his journey. What's surprising is the father then divides up the inheritance, divides up the livelihood, gives the portion to the younger son. Verse 13. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, And there wasted his possession with prodigal living. So he takes his inheritance, goes on a far journey, and wastes his inheritance on sinful living. This also shows a lack of respect for the father. If he respected the father even just a little bit, he would have made different choices with this inheritance that he had been given. Verse 14, But when he'd spent it all, There arose a severe famine in the land, and he began to be in want. Then he went and joined himself to the citizen of that country, and and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. Money's ran out. 
economy goes bad, has to look for work wherever he can get it, attaches himself to a pig farmer, and the pig farmer sends him out to feed the swine. And he would gladly had filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate, and no one gave him anything. Now, you might find this offensive, but a whole bunch of pigs together is extremely disgusting. If you've ever been to a pig farm, there's nothing pleasant about this job. And in the ancient world, they were not feeding pigs organic feed. You know what I'm saying? These were not organic hogs coming to Costco to your table, right? This is survival here. And yet, the son is like, I would love to have the pig food. But they wouldn't even give him the pig's food. That's how bad things got for him. And so we see in verse 15, in verse 16, and he would have gladly filled his stomach, verse 17. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare and I perish with hunger? He comes to his senses. And he comes to his senses about the goodness of his father, he starts to gain respect for his father that he never had before. And he says, even the servants have it better than I do right now. Makes a great decision in verse 18. I will arise and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. Can we say that he's beginning to understand what respect for the father looks like? He's come aware of his sin and he's willing to admit it. He has humility says, I've sinned against you, and I've sinned against, against heaven. And when we're walking in the fear of God, when we're walking in respect of our heavenly Father, we become aware of our sin, and we're willing to admit it. We're willing to admit it to our Father, the gravity of, of what we've done before him. In verse 19, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. He's lost the entitlement mentality. He's lost the give me mentality. And he realizes, I'm not even worthy to be called a son. I would be so blessed if I could just serve inside of your house. Church, this is the fear of God. This is worship. This is the respect of God. Instead of going to God saying, God, give me. I need this from you. I deserve this from you. Is we're humbled before God and we say, God, I just want to serve. I'm so blessed to be in the house. I'm not worthy to be called a son. I'm not worthy to do the smallest thing for you. I'm in a place where I want to serve. In verse 20, and he arose and came to his father, but when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. The father was waiting and watching for his son to return. In Luke 15, it's a series of three stories, three parables that are connected together. The first is the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. In the first two parables, the shepherd goes and looks for the sheep. The homeowner looks for the lost coin. But with the lost son, the father waits for the son to return. Why? Because the son has free will. The coin doesn't have free will. The sheep doesn't have free will in the same sense. But the son does. And so the father waits for him to return. Doesn't go out and seek him in his prodigal living. Waits till he comes to that place of repentance. But he was so thankful that his son returned. Parents, don't you know 
the appearance of your child even from a great distance away? Don't you know their walk? Don't you know their gait? Couldn't you spot them coming down the road from 200 yards? That looks like my son. That's my son. And the father then runs to his son and hugs him and weeps upon his neck and kisses him and puts a robe upon him. Church, I think that this right here, God's unconditional love, births respect for God in the greatest way. The prodigal son came to respect for the father by the consequences of his own decisions. Says, I can go back to my father to be a servant. But how much more do you think he respected his father after feeling his father's warm embrace? After feeling the tears of his father upon his neck, after wearing these sandals and these robes that he did not deserve and having the fatted calf filled, killed for him. And church, yes, it's God's judgment that causes us to fear him. We should respect his power and his holiness. But if God's grace does not move you to fear him, I don't know what will. The fact that he has unconditional love for us and he forgives us, it moves us to say, Father, I don't want to hurt your heart. I want to respect you. I want to fear you. I want to obey you. I don't think the son talked about the father the same way. I don't think that the son went to the father with this give me type of attitude any longer because he'd received grace and he'd received unconditional love from the father. So verse 21, and the son said to him, father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight and am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. And bring the fatted calf here and kill it and let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to be merry. Now we see the second prodigal son in the story. Did you know there's two prodigal sons? Here's the second. And his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. He hears all of the partying. And he called one of the servants and asked, what, are these, what these things meant? And he said to him, your brother has come, and because, he's, has been, because he has received him safe and sound, your father has killed the fatted calf. But he was angry and would not go in. Therefore, his father came out and pleaded with him. Why is he angry? He's angry over the father's kindness to his brother. In this moment, the older brother shows an entitled mentality as well. What is he declaring? I've been faithful, and I've gotten the short end of the stick. This conversation between the father and the oldest son. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and because he's received him safe... Verse 28, and he was angry and would not go in. Therefore, his father came out. So he answered and said to his father, Lo, these many years I've been serving you. I've never transgressed your command at any time, and yet you never gave me a young goat that I might make, make merry with my friends. I've been serving you all these years, and I haven't even gotten a bratwurst. I haven't even got some hamburger. 
to have a, a feast, a party with my friends. I've gotten the short end of the stick in this arrangement. But as soon as the son of yours come, who's devoured your livelihood with harlots, you killed the fatted calf for him. And he said to him, son, you are always with me and all that I have is yours. It was right that we should make merry and be glad for your brother was dead and is alive again and was lost and is found. Church, please hear this. You don't have to be out sleeping with prostitutes, getting drunk and stoned and high to lose your awe of God, to lose your respect for the Father. Here we have an older brother who's faithful, who's moral, and in this moment, he's lost his respect for the Father. Why has he lost the respect for the Father? Because the Father is giving grace that he doesn't agree with. In that moment, his perception of the Father has gotten skewed. In your faithfulness, have you ever looked at God bless someone who has been repentant in their sin, but yet lived a crazy life, and you're like, wait a second, I've never gone out and slept with harlots, and why are they getting a raise? You know, I haven't been out stoned on drugs, and why did they get that house while I'm living in this smaller house over here? And we lose sight of the grace that God has given to us. And the Father says, look, I see your faithfulness, and everything I have belongs to you, but this is a moment to be able to celebrate. So I hope that this helps us to see the fear of God more clearly, the respect of God, the awe of God, the worship of God. We want to steward our awe of God. We want to steward our, our fear of God. Because if this is the conclusion of the whole matter, if everything hinges off of worship and respect for God, then there's times that we can lose it, can't we? There's times that we can get distracted. There's times that we can walk away from this. So we always want to be in this place. Have I put God in his proper place and have I put myself in the proper place? So let's go back to Ecclesiastes and look at the next part of the conclusion of the matter. The second is to keep his commands. So first, to fear God, and then the second is to keep God's commands. In the Old Testament law, there's 613 commands. We're going to go through all of them here in the next few moments. You guys got some time? Thankfully, Jesus summed up all of the commands into one great commandment. I'll read it to you. This is in Matthew chapter 22. It says, teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. This is the first and great commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself, on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. If the meaning of life is found in keeping God's commands, then all of God's commands are summed up in this, to love God, to love him with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength, then to love your neighbor as yourself. We're going to find meaning, satisfaction, abundant life as we love the Lord. And as we love the people that he has placed inside of our lives. At the end of our lives, when we come to the end of the journey, when we step from here into eternity, what's going to matter? A relationship with the Lord. That's what's going to matter. A love for the Lord. 
and relationship with people. The rest you can't take with you, right? You can't take the possessions with you. You can't take the positions with you. All of those things are very temporary and they they pass away. As great as pleasure is and as fun as it is to have those experiences, we can't take those things with us. But a love for the Lord and a love for others, that's going to last for all of eternity. Church, what do you love? What are you loving right now? Because I bet most of us knew this prior coming into this study, but yet we move away from this. I move away from this at times. I get distracted. I start to think, well, maybe this over here is going to satisfy, or get busy and the cares of life come in and creep out this love for the Lord. Let's make it simple this morning. Love Jesus. Love him. You know, Jesus, we love you. I want God, I want to love you with my heart today. I want to love you with my mind today. I want to love you with my whole entire being today. God, I choose to love you. And where we've gotten distracted or we've gotten off course to realize it and say, man, I'm pursuing these empty things when I need to be giving this love to the Lord. We only have so much love to give. Something is going to master my affections. Something is going to be the object of my love, and am I choosing to give that love to the Lord? Jesus writes to the church of Ephesus, and he says, this one thing I have against you. After giving a lot of compliments, this church was doing well. He says, Ephesus, you have left your first love. And Jesus didn't say, uh, you have lost your first love. You ever lose your keys? You ever do one of these? go, man, I can't find my keys, right? It happens to me quite frequently. I didn't intentionally lose my keys. I just misplaced my keys. But that's not the idea of what God is saying to the church of Ephesus. He's saying, you left it. You didn't lose it. You left it. You chose it. And a lot of times we want to go to the Lord and say, God, I lost my first love. I just kind of drifted. I didn't even realize it was happening. But in reality, from God's perspective, he says, you left it. I hear this a lot of times in marriage counseling. From the spouse that's getting left, what do they say? You have left me and you've been leaving me for years. You've chosen to neglect our relationship. You've chosen to drift away from me. And the other person is saying, no, I just drifted. I just got busy with work. I got overcome with all these things. It wasn't a willful choice that I made. But the person that's on the receiving end is like, this feels awfully willful, right? So from God's perspective, he's saying, hey, this is a willful choice. You left your first love. But then Jesus goes on and he says, return. Remember from where you've fallen. Remember your first love. Remember when you loved God? Remember when I loved God? I remember when I first got saved and there was one thing that mattered is I wanted to love God. I couldn't wait to get to church. I couldn't wait to read my Bible because I'd been forgiven of sins and it just flowed so easily out of my heart. Remember that place and then return and redo those first works. Also, when we first received Christ our Savior, it was simple, right? We weren't fill in our bucket with all these complicated things and go back to the simple things of loving the Lord. 
One of the surprising things that Jesus then says to the church of Ephesus of saying, if you don't return to your first love, I'm going to remove your lampstand. Jesus is going to shut down the church because Jesus is not interested in a loveless church. He's saying, if you're not going to love me, then what's the point? Why are you doing all of, all of these things? God wants our love. Let's love him because he first loved us. He didn't love us when we were attractive or when we had our act together, but while we were yet sinners. And out of his love for us, we respond in saying, God, I, I want to love you. Then to love our neighbor as ourselves, focusing on God first and then others second. We want to treat people the way that we desire to be treated. Treat this, your spouse the way that you would like to be treated, not the way that they are treating you. Treat your kids the way that you would like to be treated. Love your neighbor as yourself. Treat your coworkers the way that you would like to be treated. Treat that stranger at the store the way that we would like to be treated. And thankfully, we have Christ to empower us for these things. Christ in you is the hope of glory. It's the fact that the Holy Spirit lives inside of us that we can live these things out to be able to love God and to love others. It's a good question to stop and ponder, what's it like to be married to me, <laughs> right? So Amber's married to me. What, what kind of experience is that for her? Is it a pleasant one or a painful one, right? What's it like to have me for a dad? If I evaluate for a moment and say, what's it like for my kids to have me for a dad? What's it like to have me as a coworker? Am I the kind of coworker where people are like, whoo, I'm sure glad they're on vacation. It's going to be a better week because they're, they're gone, right? Because at the end of our lives, that, that's what's going to matter. That, that's what's important is, is relationship. It's love to, to really be able to communicate love to others. The last thing that Solomon gives us is accountability. He says, for God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. From an under-the-sun perspective, there was no thought to eternity, but now Solomon brings in the eternal perspective. He's been trying to find the value of work through Ecclesiastes. It was really frustrating to him that no one would remember his work, that he'd have to pass on his work to someone who may not appreciate it or take care of it. But here he says, God is going to bring our work into judgment and even the secret thing. As believers, we're going to give account to God for our lives. In 1 Corinthians 3, it says our lives are going to pass before a fire. This is not a judgment for heaven or hell, but it's a judgment for reward. And the things that were of us are going to burn up, wood, hay, and stubble, but the things that were for the Lord are going to be precious gems that are going to last for eternity. Accountability is powerful. When you know, when I know that someone is watching our work, we tend to work at a better level. If we know that someone's going to inspect a job that we've done, we do it to a greater degree. When Amber's at women's retreat, I don't clean the whole time she's gone. And then that last half hour before she gets home, maybe the last hour, we go, all right, kids, let's get the house clean, right? 
And she comes home and goes, wow, you guys did, did such a great job. I'm like, if you only knew, right? <laughs> she knows. She's smart. All you ladies are so smart with all those things, right? But it's accountability. It's like, man, we want this to, to be a blessing to Amber when, when she gets home. And a lot of times we live our lives absent of believing that we're accountable, God really doesn't see. I don't have to answer to God. I can do whatever I want. But the Lord says, hey, you're going to answer to him. You're going to give an account to him. And we don't give an account to anybody else or for anyone else, I should say. So you don't give an account for your spouse or for your kids or your coworkers or your neighbors or your church family. We're simply responsible to give an account before our own lives before God. Let's look at a couple of questions. Where am I looking for meaning? Personally, where, where am I trying to have my bucket filled? And where am I finding meaning? And hear the words of Jesus, because he alone is the bread of life. He alone is living water. On the last day of the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Are you thirsty? Are you empty? I would imagine as we go through Ecclesiastes that it's highlighted some emptiness in our lives to come to Jesus and to allow him to be the living water, to allow him to be the bread of life. We can either learn the simple way or the hard way. The meaning of life, the abundant life, is all summed up in fear God and keep his commands. This is our aim. This is our goal. And so may the Lord protect us and help us to stay in that place, to not get distracted, to not move from that place of fearing him and keeping his commands. Let's stand together and let's pray. Father, we thank you that you love us. We thank you for your unconditional love that's displayed and how you received back the prodigal son. We don't deserve for you to forgive us of our sins, but you are so ready and willing to forgive our sin. Jesus, you paid the price for our sin. Would you help us to grow in fearing you and respecting you? May your grace move us to a great awe of you. Would you help us, empower us to walk in your commands, to love you? We can't do that on our own, and so we look to your strength, but we want to choose today and every day to love you. Help us to love our neighbors, love those that you've placed in our lives, to love them well for, for your glory. So we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.